0: what's going on this is the voice of the Nets podcast I'm Chris Carino happy new year everybody we're coming here for the first time in the calendar year 2023 uh, we're going to be talking to Mike Prada author of the book spaced out how the NBA's three-point line changed everything you thought you knew about basketball we'll get into that in just a little bit but first just to touch on what's going on with the Brooklyn Nets right now as the calendar year 2022 comes to an end The Nets finish out the calendar year on an 11 game winning streak, the longest active winning streak in the NBA, the longest winning streak in the NBA this season, and the longest winning streak for the Nets since they won 14 games in a row back in the 05 06 season. That was a franchise record that matched the streak they also had back in the 2003 2004 season. Now, I don't know what happens in the game on January 2nd, as I'm speaking to you. The first game of 2023 is going to be against the San Antonio Spurs at Barclays Center, a team the Nets should beat. Now, I'm recording this prior to that game. So I'm in the past. I'm speaking to you in the future. So I don't know if the Nets are going to just do what they've done for the last month, and that's go out and take care of business and get that 12th straight win. I don't know if they're going to have some kind of a letdown and lose to a Spurs team that's, you know, been 500 over the last month. They're not, they've actually been playing decent basketball. They were coming off a, you know, loss against Dallas where they came back from a big deficit, lost a one-point game. Luka Doncic hit this, you know, missed free throw at the end, like he's done a couple of times this year. But that I digress. I digress a lot. So I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know, perhaps, the Spurs are going to give the Nets all they can handle. It's going to be a tight game. Maybe the Nets had to come back and pull out a victory at clutch time. That could happen. Nets have been incredible at clutch games this year. They're 14-3 and this year. That's the best record in the NBA in clutch games, which are games that are within five points sometime in the last five minutes of the game. So I don't know if any of that stuff's going to happen. But all I know is that going into 2023, the bar has now been raised. After the game against Charlotte, a game that they won wire to wire on New Year's Eve, a game that they showed no letdown. Maybe the winning streak has kept them focused and, you know, winning sometimes makes you want to keep winning. But against the Charlotte team, that was a little dangerous because, yes, they have a, a bad record this year. The Nets had beaten them twice, but they hadn't had LaMelo Ball or Gordon Hayward in those first two games. So there was that little concern. Could they get hot from three? Would the Nets go in with the requisite fear, energy going into that game? Well, they did. They went wire to wire. Only the fourth time this year they have had a wire to wire win for their 11th in a row. And after the game, Kevin Durant was on the podium. He faced questions from the media and he reflected on the year that was, 2022. This is Kevin Durant after the game. He said, it was one of those years you reflect on. You see the turning point in your organization, see different moments that brought us together. You'd start to see us coming together and form what we've been looking to do these last couple of years. A solid team that plays hard every night. We went through a lot this calendar year, but we're looking for bigger and better things in 2023. The thing that you notice about this win streak, and listen, I know that injuries can be a huge factor in the NBA. So barring any kind of disastrous injuries, this team has shown you what they're capable of, and they're not doing it in a way where anything extraordinary is happening to a extent where you go, well, they can't keep that up. They have settled in as a team during this 11-game winning streak going in the end of 2022. They got to a place where I think a lot of people doubted they could get to. And that is fair. I mean, look at everything. The litany that Kevin Durant went through, he named everything that happened to them in 2022 after the game the other night. And to think that they can go through all of that and finish the year with the second-best record of the NBA— with the longest winning streak in the NBA, and doing it in a way that is easily replicable. You can't tell the story of this year without talking about Jacques Vaughn bon and what he's been able to do since taking over as the head coach. Jacques talks about keeping things simple, simplifying things. And that may be oversimplifying what he's been able to do. See, the thing I know about Jacques Vaughn, and I've learned this over the years, and knowing him going back to his time when he was a player, and by the way, Jacques Vaughn was on that team back in the 05-06 net team that won 14 in a row. So this winning streak, the longest since the team that Jacques Vaughn played on back in the 05-06 season for the Nets. But Jacques Vaughn has established roles. He has not tried to interject too much of himself into this. He's made it about the players, and he's done what coaches are really supposed to do 90% of the time. You know, you can talk about X's and O's all you want. Coaching is about motivating people to do their best. And for whatever reason, Jacques Vaughn has been able to do that. You know, I get to spend 5-10 minutes before every game with Jacques Vaughn, do an interview, Exclusive interview one-on-one with him that you could hear before every game on our pregame show on radio on WFAM. Or if you want to tune in on the app, Brooklyn Nets app, hit listen. Usually right around 7:25 for a 7:30 game every night. It's on there. You can hear it. Now, the thing that I have taken away from those interviews with Jacques Wong is that I have to be focused and ready because Jacques does everything with a purpose. You know, when you see him walk around the building, he's never sauntering. Jack doesn't saunter anywhere. He moves with a purpose. He's got somewhere to be, somewhere to go, something to do. And when he answers questions, even you see this when he answers the media, first of all, there's always a smile on his face. But he is direct. He doesn't meander around the question. He is clear and concise. So you've got to be ready you got to listen to him. Make sure if there's a, a question that now comes about from his answer, you want to follow up. But you have to have the next question ready to go. Because it's a fast-paced interview. And I love that. He makes me be better. He makes me be more focused. And when it's over, when my interaction with him for the day is done, I am immediately in a better mood. He's got me motivated. Jacques Vaughn has done a terrific job as the head coach of this team in this short period of time. And we'll see if it can keep going. We know there's a lot of basketball left, but they have raised the bar going into 2023. Our guest today is Mike Prada. He is the author of a book called Spaced Out, how the NBA's three-point line changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. Mike was a, a former Writer and editor at SB Nation and their national NBA coverage. Now he's a writer and editor for the NBA coverage at The Athletic. And he wrote this book. And it's such a great conversation starter, this book. Because it leads you into so many different areas that we can talk about. The revolution that happened when the NBA decided to paint that two-inch thick line in an arc around the half court. And how it completely changed the way multi-billion dollar teams operate. The way they coach, the way they play, the kind of players that they try to find. It completely changed who can play in the NBA, who can thrive in the NBA. It has evolved and it has evolved at a rapid pace. We're going to talk with Mike all about that. We'll get into a lot of interesting discussion. Could have talked for hours. We only had about 45 minutes. So we'll have that conversation coming up. And then stay tuned afterwards. Um, He does talk about some things personally. You know, what made him write the book. And it it took a kind of poignant turn toward the end. And then I'll have some thoughts about that and uh, everything else on our uh, little... I call the post-game show. This is like the pre-game show. And then the the interview is like the game. And then I'll come on for the... uh, the post-game show, so stay tuned for that. All right, our first episode of the Voice of the Nets podcast for 2023 with Mike Prada, author of Spaced Out. It's next, right here on the Voice of the Nets. So, Mike, as a, as a, uh, as a play-by-play guy, I'm a stickler for pronunciations. Mm. So I appreciate that in your Twitter bio, you have how to say your name Prada, not to be confused with the design company, Prada. It's spelled the same way. I thought maybe you were an heir to the fortune, but, but now I see you pronounce the name
1: differently. Nope, just an ordinary commoner. Uh, <laughs> yeah, enough people had messed up the name very understandably. Because sure. why would you pronounce it Prada if it was spelled that way? You know, why would anybody know? But I just was like, all right, at this point, like I just gotta put it out there. So just to be clear, you're not part, you're not an heir to the to the Prada fortune, not officially.
0: Okay. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I'm maybe, not. maybe someone will discover. Will pick up your new book, which is called Spaced Out." Had the NBA's three point line changed? Everything you thought you knew about basketball. So I'll, let, let's jump in here because it's such a great book in terms of there, there's so many ways you can go and it starts spark so much conversation. Um, Your premise, what do you what do you feel people think they knew about basketball?
1: Well, I think that people, <laughs> you know, the way I explain it is that imagine I mean, this is literally what happened. You have 10 players who play in a surface, right? That's how many players in a typical half court sequence before this three-point revolution, if they were shooting from at furthest 20 right on top of the line, the surface area of what those 10 people cover is 22 ish 23 ish by 50, I guess. Yeah. Right now, imagine that you said we're going to now extend that 22 border to 35 to 40 because of how far away people are shooting and how quickly people are shooting, how fast the game is, all of that. But then you didn't add more players to fill that space, Hmm. right? You said, okay, now these 10 players have to fill that space instead. It's almost one and a half to two times as big to me. I think what's sort of the obvious, almost plain sight point that's overlooked is they're going to behave differently if they want to try to cover all those spaces They're going to move differently. They're going to dribble differently. They're going to align differently. It's as if like your gym teacher in Capture the Flag says, oh, by the way, the the border now extends out past that tree. Mm. And you now have to run around to it. So to me, like that was kind of what was the very simple thing that was missing. And if that's the case, and if literally you're playing on a different surface, on a different size surface, you'd have to, to me, question everything we thought we knew. You know, Mm -hmm. do we still want to move and align ourselves and put the ball in certain places? Why would we do it in the same way when we have to do it on this big a court? And I have my arms is is here this big instead of this big. So to me, that's sort of what I think needed to be relearned. And that doesn't necessarily mean that what was right before is wrong now. But I think we just sort of had to reconsider it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it changed who who gets to play the game. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I mean, I, I know we'll go back to the, the origin of it, and you touch on this in the book, but um, I, I talked about this a couple of episodes ago when we had uh, Brian Taylor, the former uh, Nets ABA all-star, who ended up being the first guy to ever lead the NBA in three-point field goals made. Um, but we talked about how the origin of the line was in the old, was it, um, before the ABA Abe yeah. Saperstein had started a league. The guy who started the Harlem Globetrotters, mm-hmm. right, had started a league because he thought it was just getting to the game. The NBA game was just monsters. Behemoths were ruling and there was no room for small skilled players, right? So what was the, it, uh, That was the impetus, I guess, for the evolution of the three-point line.
1: Yeah, you know, it even goes back further than that. There's a guy named Howard Hobson, who was the coach at, I believe, Oregon. uh, Mm. And he coached in other places. Um, And he had experimented with a three-point line in the 1940s uh, Mm. in a scrimmage. And obviously, that never made it to the mainstream. But to the point that you're making with sort of opening the game up and allowing more people to play, the late 70s were very much defined by, in the NBA, as physicality, punches, Kermit, the Kermit Washington incident with um, Rudy Tomjanovich Tom Tom yeah. was was around that time. The playoffs were just these slugfests. So Howard Hobson, who at this point in the late 70s is, you know, nearing the end of his career in life, writes a letter to Larry O'Brien and says, you know, do you want to stop fighting in your league that is hmm. giving you such a bad rep? you have to create a three point line to get people out. He said if everybody's within this tiny radius, it's only natural that they're going to fight each other. Hmm. And I had I, you know, I just coming across that letter, I was like that dude got it for however many hmm. years before people got it now. And so even going all the way back then to open the game up and provide a different type of player to play, you didn't have to be this big physical bruiser. That goes all the way back to the 70s, and yeah, I mean, that that's exactly what it did. It just totally changed what, may, what type of player could be involved in. At the time, smaller players were the ones that were kind of entered into the league, and that happened in the NBA as well. But now, I mean, what's so crazy now is that now the bigger guys play like smaller guys. It's almost like the yeah. bigger guys have taken over the smaller guys' skills.
0: Yeah. And that's changed. Well, it's probably the way uh, guys have grown up and, and watching the game the way it is now. And we're getting into that. I want to get into, to, you know, uh, Steph Curry. And of course he's a huge part of this whole thing, but just it, going back again to the, the, the origin of it. I know the, in the ABA had it, the three point line, but then, when the ABA merged with the NBA, there was still a reluctance to go to the three-point line. It took a few years. What finally made the NBA... I know it, it probably touches a little bit what you talked about just now, but what made the NBA finally relent and go to a three-point line?
1: I think a lot of it was... I mean, you call it reluctance. I'd call it something stronger than reluctance. I'd call it outright hostility hmm. from a lot of the top you know, people in the NBA. You know, I, I can imagine... You take you bought you you beat this league, the ABA. They merged with you. You're the big dogs. And then now you have to take their thing. Like I yeah. can imagine the cognitive dissonance there that was <laughs> yeah. tough. Uh but I think the the series were really poorly rated, you know, the finals, the TV ratings. There was just this sort of there's too much fighting. This kind of at a certain point, like something had to be done. This was again, remember, pre-Larry Johnson or Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Also, pre Larry Johnson, (laughs) Um, (laughs) who who made a pretty huge three at one point
0: for the Knicks, where we will remember, but we digress. Yeah.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. He had a couple. One I know, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, But yeah. So I think at the time there was just like, we've got to try this. We've got to see what it's like. And what's, what's really amazing to me is this goes through the Board of Governors 15 to 7. So it passed by one vote. So this was hardly like kind of. Because it needed a two thirds majority. So it was hardly like kind of this everybody is on board with this thing. And then the preseason of that year, guys like Jerry Colangelo, who was on the rules committee at the time, and other people are like, relax, it's not going to change the game this thing. We just got to try this thing out. And Can you imagine like sort of fighting so hard to get something like this through? And then your first reaction once you finally get it is you've got to calm down the naysayers. Mm -hmm. To me, that explains so much of why it took so long for it to be adopted. You know, but to answer your question, I think it just reached a point where they had to do something to juice up the game. It was just getting the TV ratings were too bad. And it's the same thing that happened in 2001 with the illegal defense rule at a certain point. You just had to do something different. Well, I think, and you talked about in the book, too, about, I think it was the finals that year
0: before, right, was particularly rough. The last couple, yeah, because it was both Seattle versus Washington. So, again, that the bigs all crammed into the paint, it creates this hostility. And uh, they were trying to get that out of the game, obviously. Uh, But, you know, you, you... the, the evolution then from there on in, and we know Chris Ford makes the first three. I talked about this with Brian Taylor. You know, he led the league with 90 the first <laughs> year that it was implemented. And we were, we were discussing this at the time. Uh, it was 25 games into the NBA season this year. And I said to Brian, I said, you know that that wouldn't even lead the league 25 games into the season right now. I think at the time we were talking about that, Steph Curry already had 117 before yeah. he got hurt this year. Um, so it's jumped, I mean, in leaps and bounds. But really, even in the last decade, mm-hmm. it's yeah. it's gone completely. Uh, it's jumped. What do you think? You know, We've had such acceleration in the pace of it. Is that just compounding interest kind of at this point?
1: Yeah, you know, in in some ways, this is what the whole the whole book really zeroes in on why did it happen in 2014 or so. I mean, I think you look at the 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 Warriors three point shooting numbers, they would be, I think, near the bottom of the league from the first year they win the title if they came in this now. And I think there are a number of things that happen. I mean, in some ways, this is a chain reaction, but all of them lead to, in my mind. There's using the three-point line where it's like, okay, it's here for us. Like if we want to play inside out, use this as a weapon, stand on top of it. And then there's, oh, this, the fear of this thing can make it easier to score inside. And if we just like play up-tempo and show a willingness to shoot a lot of them, not only is it better mathematically, so you have that sort of one side of it sort of slamming together, you also just create this like whiplash frenzy that, just makes every other shot easier. And I think it took the Warriors doing what they did to figure that out. And then on the other side, you took the Rockets and the analytics movement to say, well, three is greater than two. You slam those two things together, you merge it with some of these other movements that have kind of happened. You know, the legal defense rule going in in 2001, the hand checking, the positional revolution. It's a kind of a chain reaction. Um, But I think that to me, like the the chaos element is what really drove it over the top and you know the a lot of human inventions go gradual growth gradual growth gradual growth spike mm-hmm. so in some ways the three pointer is not a huge exception but to me just the spike is the part that i think people don't even appreciate even now, and that was what the impetus of the book was, is it really is like like 2014 on. This is very recent. We're we in a very crazy rapid amount of change period in the NBA right now, and more so than, I think, ever since the shot clock that we ever had a game that's changed this tremendously. You make a great point about the threat of it.
0: You know, it's when, you know uh, happy days. I don't know how how, how old a guy you are, but you know, there happy days. I remember there was an episode where the Fonz was trying to teach Richie how to be tough. You know, if <laughs> <laughs> you, you remember that, <laughs> and, he, and he gives him all these little pointers. You know, and then Richie tries it out, and the guy doesn't back down, and he goes back to Fonz. I did all the stuff you told me. But he goes, oh, I forgot something. You you at one point you had to hit somebody, and he's like, yeah, right, <laughs> a very important point. You didn't mention there, Fonz, and it's like you've. The threat of the three-point line, you've got to be able to make threes. And I feel like mm-hmm. maybe guy, kid, you know, younger guys growing up in this generation that have been influenced by Steph Curry, they've been working on that shot and maybe shooting it better than anyone in the history of the game. Guys are just better at it. And the fact that they're better at it leads to them utilizing it more. You've got to be able to make them to have it be
1: a threat. But what's what's so fascinating about that is that the actual three-point percentage league-wide, really since the three-point in the last 25, 30 years, has basically just been pretty flat. Mm. If you just look at just the bubble, the post-bubble year, it went up a little bit. Because I think of empty arenas. That's what a lot of players were saying. No, But overall, generally, if you look at... I forget what the league average is right now. I think it's like 35.8%. It was about 35.8% 25 years ago, too. But what's happened is that obviously the degree of difficulty of all those shots has gone Hmm. way up. So what I think speaks to your point is that if there's shooting 35.8% on okay, nobody's actually guarding me out here. There's one guy out here. I catch a kick out pass. I take like a one, two step in and it takes a while and I sort of launch it. And then there's 35.8% on running this quick dribble handoff with this guy, like, let's just say I was just for the Nets, like Royce O'Neal was someone who in the past would have probably just been like a spot up shooter. He, you duck under the screen. Royce O'Neal is pulling up that shot. He's maybe hitting, well, this series, hitting it probably more than 35%. 40%, yes. Yeah. But, uh, but on that shot, you know, and I think the other thing too, is if you do it a lot, and I think there's a lot big psychology element as well. You do it a lot. I, I talk about Marcus Smart is like my key example of this in the hmm. book. Marcus Smart's percentage is like around 32% for his career, but he'll get hot and he'll keep going and he'll keep acting like he's a hot shooter. And after, if you do that enough times, what sticks in the memory of the defender is, Oh, he can make the shot rather than he's going to miss it most of the time. And that yeah. causes them to play him differently, but you can only get to that point if you're actually shooting a lot of them. Well, a couple of things to, to just go back on and touch on what you just said. it,
0: I think for um, what's interesting about a lot of times with the, the three-point shot is that it can be such a momentum changer.
1: Absolutely. You know, it,
0: and you talk about empty arenas. Well, when you're in a full arena, sometimes if, yeah, Marcus Smart's not, he's a 32% three-point shooter, but he's a clutch three-point shooter. He's not afraid of the moment and he's not afraid to take that shot in the moment. And when he does, man, the whole place just erupts and that could affect the next five minutes of the game you know, Mm -hmm. or a miss the same way can be deflating. And I also think the other part of it is that not every three-pointer is created equal. You know, the corner three is easier than, you know, shorter than the other ones. And sometimes I've always felt like the three-point shot is a barometer of how well your offense is playing because the higher your percentage is, yeah, like the higher your percentage is, the chances are the ball's moving better. You know, some guys are are catch and shoot guys. Some guys can walk up the floor and shoot it. But sometimes if the ball is moving and popping, guys are getting more open shots. So they'll have a higher percentage. It's not just that, well, this guy's a better three-point shooter. No, it's a healthier offense.
1: Yeah, and I think it's all connected. I talk about in the book this uh, the rise of the point five mentality, which is something mm-hmm. that Greg Popovich and the Spurs really used to win their championship. The shoot form. it, move it, drive it in 0.5, yeah. right? like Make a decision. Yep. That's what, uh, that's what it is. And what happens that it, Mike D'Antoni has a kind of phrases, the ball finds energy. Mm. Um, that's another one of his, what sort of happens is that it all kind of plays into each other because if you're constantly moving past and shooting quickly, you're embracing chaos rather than hiding from it. And mm. that changes the way that the defense guards you, that changes the rhythm you're in when you shoot them. And I think, that was the real lesson that people realize is that, okay, maybe we don't literally shoot the ball better if we're moving it uh, just like a percentage, but it just feels like we're kind of doing so many things quickly and the defense can't keep up. But in order to kind of have that, you have to be able to have a little crazy in you to shoot the ball really fast, to kind of yeah. move it quickly. And that, and, and what I, t- I also talk about, how I think that changes the way players shot motions look, you know, what does it mean if you need to get off a lot of 25-footers? You can't shoot them the way you used to. You mm-hmm. got to kind of get into your shot quicker. You gotta, do you dip? Now you see shooters now, like, they'll catch the ball and they'll keep it up high while they just put their their, their knees down. All of it is just designed, I think, to kind of create this. The overarching theme is let's embrace chaos instead of trying to control it. Let's play Free and flow. That to me is what this era is really all about, and how that has just flipped the game of basketball on its head. It,
0: there was, in the book, you talked about a dichotomy of the, the two teams that probably people think of in recent years when it comes to the three point shot. Obviously, the Golden State Warriors and the slash Brothers and what they've been able to do. But then you had the Rockets, and you mentioned mm-hmm. that Tony and Harden, I mean, they broke all kinds of records and, and the three point shot. But they kind of approached it in a different way. And it kind of came to a head when they met in the Western conference finals. Could you speak to, to what you were getting at with that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I call it a holy war because uh, it's like two sects of the same religion in my head hmm. where they come from the D'Antoni son's family tree. D'Antoni obviously goes off to the Rockets, but the Warriors have a lot of sons people as well. The Warriors, I and mean, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's a helpful one to think about how they affected the rest of the league. The Warriors are much more of the movement art, you know, we're doing this to whip you into a frenzy division. Um, call them Protestantism or something or whatever. <laughs> yes. If you want to kind of extend the analogy, the Rockets were much more industrious about it. It's like, hey man, three is greater than two. Like, why are we taking twos that are yeah. this percentage? And then what ends up happening is if we take more threes, we just, we literally stand further away. We, we, you know, create more space. It's much more of this kind of prosaic approach. They're both right. They were both part of the philosophy that like kind of was where the Suns came in and, that has affected the whole league, but they hated each other for it because they were going to, they felt like they were like rivals going about it in like kind of almost a sacrilegious way. You, you, you listen to how the Warriors talked about how Houston played with their isolation ball. It, it almost feels like they're saying that's sacrilegious to what it, we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it
0: was a little like, uh, you know, like, um, I always bring it back to music, but like grunge, it would be like people pitting Nirvana mm-hmm. against Pearl Jam. You know, it was the same, but it was different. And it comes to a head when they play each other in the in the in the Western Conference finals that year. And what was interesting about it, and to your point, is the Rockets were kind of rigid in their approach. And they go mm-hmm. on that stretch, where they missed like twenty-seven straight. They right? sure did. And, yeah. and there was no and there was no in between for them. Whereas the Warriors, you said that it was yes, we want to take a lot of threes, but it's more of that's just a result of us creating the chaos. If we had to, though, we can play a mid-range game. And I think sometimes Mm -hmm. in the postseason, like over the course of a year, you look statistically, yes, it's it's, uh, an analytics approach and that'll work. But sometimes in the playoffs, it boils down to a few possessions or a quarter and you got to be a little more flexible, I think, to have that thing. And I think that flexibility is what ultimately the Warriors multi-champions and maybe Houston was just the king of the regular season.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's 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 certainly true. I mean, I think that there's no question that you need... It's better to look at it as an art. And I think that in general, the Warriors didn't just win on the scoreboard. They also won stylistically. I think there are more teams today who play like them than who play like Houston. But I also think that, one, you needed... Uh, you know Houston to really push the envelope to kind of you need both sides of it. You the Warriors moderate enough to win, but they would the rest of the league wouldn't have thrust forward without Houston being like, let's take this to the logical extreme. Mm-hmm. Number two, obviously they were close to winning. That series could have gone either way. Maybe if Chris Paul plays, what I think is most fascinating about it is listening to the Warriors talk about it the year after and say. What you're saying, but also sort of making it more specific to the Rockets. It's like, yo, three years ago, you guys were the the revolutionaries. Now you're like, oh no no no, <laughs> they're taking it too far. To me, that illustrated just how quickly this happened yeah. and how fast it was. And what I think is actually happening this year is what's interesting is that two point shooting is like on uh, as among the highest it's ever been in league history. Offense is really going up. What I think more people have realized, to your point, is that. If we present all these threats, we make every shot easier. So as more people align their defenses to guard the three, we're taking more of those mid-range shots that we're stepping into them. We're starting far away, but we're stepping into them. We're throwing the ball to uh, the post on duck-ins really quickly You know when you switch, and it's harder for you to help because you're all spread out. And so two-point shooting is on the rise as well. So this is almost the peak version of offense this year is this – Where everybody can kind of do everything.
0: Well, you know, a lot of times I think, and and this had something I think to do with Daryl Morey in Houston and his analytics approach, and and then they were taking all these threes. Is that um, the idea of analytics got linked to three point shooting? Where really analytics just means it's it's stats, it's percentages, it's playing the best percentages, and Mm -hmm. you know when you look at the Nets, I mean, Kyrie Irving when he can get to his spot which is is pretty much every time he has the ball, when Kevin Durant gets to his spot, which is every time he gets the ball, their mid-range shot is a high analytic shot because it's a high percentage shot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you got to step back to the three, but then it also makes it easier for Joe Harris to make his best shot, which is the three. It makes it easy for Royce. How many, You know, Royce O'Neal, I, the guy has 10 feet of free space in front of him every time mm-hmm. he's going to shoot the three because of those guys. So it really the mid there is room for them. The mid-range became kind of like a uh you know a, an old word. It was nostalgic. But no, it just means a high percentage shot. And for some guys, a mid-range shot is a good shot.
1: Yeah. I think what actually happened, which is interesting, is you know, in the 90s back in the day, that you sort of had the three-point shot was like reserved for the specialists, right? Yeah. If you were really good at it, you could shoot it. Today the mid-range shot is kind of that. Yes. And the three-point shot is what's the role players. So in a weird way, like, I think this this conversation got a little, the mid-range conversation got a little blown up because what was really happening is you were taking all the shots that, like, kind of your Royce O'Neal's used to take from 16 feet. And you said, Royce O'Neal, just take those from three. Kevin Durant's shot diet, Kyrie Irving's shot diet, DeMar DeRozan's shot diet. That type of stuff wasn't really changing. It just was re reorganizing the alignment of the floor, and that takes us all the way back to why I love this. I really like this style of basketball personally. I know there are a lot that don't. To me, what I love about it is that you have to present a shape. I just love seeing the way the shape of a possession, where all five players have to be playing off each other. Hmm. Where Durant's, like you said, Durant's ability to shoot from sixteen feet over anybody. Is enhanced by Joe Harris his ability to shoot from twenty five feet, which is also then enhanced by Kevin. Like there's a symbiotic nature sure. to it, and it's about the whole. And I think what the league is starting to figure out really this year, and that's why I think office is really high. Is just they have the perfect balance of how to create that shape to make everybody better this year. And it's funny you use, the word that sh- lesson.
0: you use the word shape, and it's the first time I hear you use. You know, people use it in terms of basketball. You think of soccer.
1: You know, exactly know, the yeah. shape
0: right there's, there's what what shape are they going to be in here um and it it, it it's it's very visual of a view of people connected and th- connect those dots and it makes a certain form um and they call soccer the beautiful game and i think when you look at what the nba has tried to done over, do over the years in enhancing the and let's face it the the nba is a it's an entertainment piece you want it to be the most entertaining thing you can do. It's a multi-billion dollar operation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they've taken things out like the hand check, like the, you know, even the even just bumping guys that are moving through the lane. They they want to make free flowing game to make it more entertaining. Um the three-point shot maybe started that. You you mentioned you're you're a fan of this style. Do you think we're at the most entertaining Peak of the game. Yeah. And what are the arguments against
1: it right now? I think the the tricky thing needs to be changed. I think the the tricky thing, of course, is that entertainment is an entirely subjective point of view that is enhanced by when you grew up, you know, and what your tastes are. Um, I mean, obviously, there's definitely um, some backlash to how it's just impossible to defend anymore. And so the question is what is. 120 points mean these days. My argument to counter that has always been that's all anchored one, that's all anchored in what the past was, right? So just if it was in reverse, if we like kind of became more defensive, we would be saying, I don't know how to make sense of 90 points. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So we're anchored by what was previously happening. And two, the one point I try to make in this book. And again, I'm I'm not advocating for like, this is how it has to be because I know it it's in the eye of the beholder. I happen to like it, but I also understand, but to me, what's important to note is this is the kind of game. James James Naismith kind of wanted in a lot of ways. If you read how Naismith conceived of basketball, he conceived of it as an up and down. There is no defense. There is no offense. There are no coaches. It's free flowing. Uh, fast break style open. He hated how kind of goonish the game had started to become in his mind. In the 1930s, obviously, it it was way more goonish than it is. It was in the 90s, so like I don't know how he would have felt about the 90s or the 2000s. But you know, this was sort of kind of the game that he wanted. And I would, I think there's certainly some things that could be fixed. Um, I think it's a lot harder to follow. Frankly, than it used to be, where if you had no illegal defense, it was just much easier to throw the ball to one on one and like all your eyes could focus on the one-on-one matchup. Now mm-hmm. I find my eyes are going like all over the place <laughs> trying to track everything. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to follow. So from that perspective, it's hard to be entertained by something that's kind of moving too quickly, I suppose. But to me, I think like this it makes sense that we're using the whole court where they have diverse style play in terms of the types of players we have. I mean, isn't it amazing that Giannis and Chris Paul can both succeed in a, in this sport? <laughs> yeah, right. Or and Zion and- Wilson and Victor Wembanyama. Yeah, yeah, and because and
0: you know, I I know we we don't have all the time, but we get into you know the whole idea of positionless basketball and you know how I know you bristle at that term a little bit. Where you know it <laughs> really is like it's it's um, you know basketball is the kind of thing it's. It, It's like jazz, you know, we were talking about football is a symphony where everything's gotta be exact and precise. Basketball is more free flowing In jazz. And yes, a guy can be, um, you know, really we call them as some structure, this guy is a center because he's seven foot, but when he's handling the ball at the top of the key, he's really a point guard at that moment. It's like Mm -hmm. if a running back starts out in the backfield but he motions out as a wide out, he's now a wide receiver. You know, so it depends on where you are on the floor. If Kevin Durant's got it on the block, well, he's acting like a center. But he was bringing the ball to the floor. He's a point guard. You know, so really yeah. that's kind of what you think of. But I just want to you know, talk about the, you, you mentioned the chaos and what Naismith kind of thought of this game that would go back and forth and be a little wild and it's entertaining that way. I always thought that Rick Petino didn't get enough credit for that. When you think back his time at Providence, he was the first guy, that was the first time I really heard the math. Like, no, we're going to shoot mm-hmm. a lot of threes because they're worth more. And we could shoot a lower percentage from three and score more points than if we shot a higher percentage from two. And then remember those two years, he went to the Knicks. And I remember, yep. you know, being a mm-hmm. guy, I was like 18, 19 years old and I used to go to the garden before the Pat Riley days and they were filling the garden. There was a half empty crowd there, but they were playing, you know, they had the bomb squad and Mark Jackson and Trent Tucker and that crew mm-hmm. were making threes. and but, but that was predicated on pressure defense. You know, like yeah. they were they were pressing for 48 minutes to try and get the game a little wild. And I mean, you know, when Patino was there, they doubled twice the franchise record for threes in the early 80s. And that's before D'Antoni
1: and that old crew. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people that I mean, one of the things that's tough about writing a book like this is that you're inevitably going to leave innovators out. Sure. You know, you sort of have to you have to, sort you want of to write cr- it. Cr- Almanac, yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just, you know, there's so many Pacino. I was, I wish I had been able to write more about the Sonics, uh about Kloppenberg and George Carl with their pressure defense and yeah. their SOS scheme. Uh I thought that was very ahead of its time. I look at teams like the Raptors. I see the Sonics would have been great to write more about Rudy Tom uh Rockets that won the title. It would have been really cool to write, you know, even go. Maybe deeper. the next one, maybe the next book, maybe, maybe the next one. <laughs> Stan Van Gundy and the Stretch four experiment with the magic that was one that kind of got a little bit of yeah. short stretch the Kings of um Chris Weber, uh Mike Bibby and the Princeton offense that they ran in the early 2000s that's uh, ran
0: that too with Eddie Jordan and uh Jason mm-hmm. Kidd they ran a Princeton half court offense
1: they did yeah uh, and I I grew up on those Wizards teams with Gilbert Arenas and they ran that stuff too when Eddie Jordan was their coach and yeah looking at like like I mean even going all the way back to, you know, I talk about this guy, John McClendon, uh, who was at Kansas undergrad and he coached uh, a number of college teams, used HBCU teams. He has this like fast break style where it's like, oh my God, this is exactly what D'Antoni was doing in 1950. Mm. So it's just the thing is it's just so sometimes you just gotta be the right person at the right time. And I, I yeah. sort of just felt like it's not like D'Antoni or the Sons or any of the other key members. Don Nelson was very prominently mentioned in the book. Yeah, yeah, Any of the other key figures were necessarily the first, but they were the first at the right time when the, the rest of the world was ready to
0: hear it. That's like the, uh, the premise of the Malcolm Gladwell book, Tipping Point. You know, some mm-hmm. things didn't, you know, were around, but didn't really hit it. And then, you know, there's one influencer that stumbled on something and boom, it just, you know goes up immensely um i I know a lot of things i I would love to you know you mentioned too about how you know we mentioned bomb squad with mark jackson ironically you know he was the coach of the warriors when the slash brothers first showed up and they kind of got rid of him because they thought he was too rigid
1: Mm -hmm. uh as a coach
0: offensively
1: right and yeah to me yeah to me that just illustrates just how quickly this has changed like yeah that's the thing i think people When I say when i change everything you thought you knew about basketball that like kind of flip it tight subhead <laughs> yeah. you know that i had there it's, it's a great little... though it gets you it gets
0: it, it gets you talking it's a great conversation starter <laughs> you know just before mike i let you go though i want to touch on you just personally so this is the first time this is the first book now you're 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 an editor you're an nba writer for a long time i you know but this is the first book you wrote how did you find the experience of? Writing a book,
1: that was hard. Yeah. <laughs> very hard. Um, I was. It's it's just such a. I think my experience is very atypical uh, of even book writers. You know, I was an editor at SV Nation for ten years, uh, running all that's all that side. So did some writing on the side, obviously breaking down film and all that sort of stuff. Um, I got furloughed, you know, right before the pandemic, right at the start of the pandemic. The day I got that furlough, Triumph asked me if they wanted to write a book about X's and O's. And I was like, well, that seems really intimidating. Um <laughs> well, So I'm the authority now. So it, the idea evolved, but I had no intention of writing this a, a book at all. I had no idea what I was going to do. So it was while I was kind of looking around for the next opportunity for the next two years, that was what I did for this is like 2020. And the book I turned in in like 2022. So it was like two years of research two years is just and honestly the hardest part was just figuring out the scope. Uh, ultimately just what can I include? Cause you can include everything. Like what is the story I wanted to tell? Exactly. Yeah. Um, that was the hardest part. Um, the more you narrow down your focus sometimes the easier it is to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, would you want to write like,
0: another one? Like what was the experience. Did it make you want to do it or not want to do
1: it again? <laughs> you asked me this in 2021. I don't think I would want to do this again. Right. You asked me this today. I'm like, yeah, let's do this again. If you find I the right topic what, or something. Yeah. Yeah. That part, I think, is what most writers would tell you. But, um, you know, it's just, it, it, I'm not, a, I, I had no idea like how to write for a book, you know? And so. Did I anybody was, help you out with it? I had, uh, you know, I had editors uh, that But really I mean, as far as like other authors,
0: friends of yours in the business that gave you I good advice. I,
1: I had a few that gave me good advice. Um, I want to shout out Jake Fisher uh, mm. in particular, Seth Partnow, uh, Chris Herring was really helpful at different yeah. points. Mirren Fader was helpful at different points, Alex Wong, um, all the folks that I had worked with uh, in the past. But I sort of took the approach of this has got to be just a really long blog post. And that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. And it just, it helped me sort of wrap my head around it. Um mm. Sorry. That's just the we look at it. What, what? Uh, obviously, you love the NBA
0: and you love the game of basketball. Or you could never have written a book of this kind of scope. Um, what made
1: you fall in love with the NBA? What was the time? You, you know, so, I'm going to get a little sentimental here this was like a father-son activity for us growing up when i was a kid my dad was a huge celtics fan i'm from dc area Mm -hmm. uh, but he used to take me to the washington bullets games when i was growing up that was around the time of the capitals the last days of the capitol center chris weber Juwan howard teams they're uh never quite so good but they always great tickets available we used to go just the two of us and that was sort of like our thing um and then my dad actually passed away when I was in high school in a single car accident. It was just very sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways I think, I, and I dedicated the book to him. So this is not like a total secret, but I think I'm just sort of living out that childhood memory as much as I can. In mm-hmm. some ways, I've just been lucky to have these opportunities to try to do that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I had thought about that question a lot, like kind of what, what made you want to do this? And I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, I did journalism in college, you know, I, I wanted to get in the industry. I started uh, Bullets Forever, the SV Nation Wizards blog, covered them for a number of years of being a John Walls career and, you know, I really liked doing it. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, I think it was, a, it's a father-son journey that I'm trying to keep that memory alive in some ways. You know, it was, we just passed the 20 year mark since he passed. Wow, So
0: that's a great, you know, crazy uh, timing. And that's so much of what sports is, you know, it's nostalgia and it's, it's remind it's that time, father, son time that it reminds you of. I mean, there's a million stories like that. Um, yeah. and then it inspires you to, to go out and do this. Um, I always, I always end this and I know, you know, um, I wouldn't want to deny you this opportunity, but all my guests on the, on the program, I, I end this by, um, cause I really am interested in, in the people behind these things that we do and, mm-hmm. uh, something that the, the Jim Balbano speech at the ESPYs has always been a, a, a huge influence on me over the years. And, you know, he, he mentioned that there's three things to do to have a full day. I don't know if you recall that he said, you know, you want to laugh, think, and cry every day yeah. to have a full day. So, um, what makes Mike pray to laugh? I know you're into X's and O's and you're, and you're, uh, I know it's not like, you know, uh, Pick and roll defense isn't making you no, laugh. No. But,
1: but, so, <laughs> sometimes sometimes, hey, sometimes it can be, yeah. Uh, certain guys yep. try
0: to play it, it can make you laugh. Yeah. But what makes yeah. uh what or what or
1: who or something that makes you laugh? Oh, uh, when well, the the way the Nets were playing pick and roll defense early in the year, that <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, uh, beautiful wife. They make me laugh all the time. They're just hilarious. They're they're That's at great. the stage where they're you know, they're saying things that just to make, to crack themselves up that are really silly. Um, <laughs> they make me laugh every day. And, you know, our wife is, is, makes me laugh all the time just with her support. Um, You know. I honestly wish that there were more things that made me cry. Um,
0: well, I was going to say, like, it made me it it made me start to get emotional just hearing your story about you and your dad. You know, like I think that that I appreciate that that's something that, and it's not like cry, waterworks kind of thing. It's just sort of like it it moves your emotions to tears, and that that did it for me today. I re- I can cross that off my my list today. Uh, yeah. I I had my emotions moved to that point. Yeah,
1: Do you know, honestly, what does make me Maybe not cry, but maybe feel emotional. Started and emotions, think, Yeah. And I think something that connects both to basketball and this is just seeing like a group of people be more than what the sum of their parts are, just come together to achieve something where <laughs> I like to say this a lot one plus one equals more than two for them. You know, just. Yeah. And that whether that's basketball, whether that's at my current job, where you know all the editors are helping each other out and writers are sharing ideas, and you you really nail that piece. You know, one of the folks I edit is Tim Cato in Dallas, and he just had an amazing 24 hours covering Luka Doncic's you know 60 point game. Yeah. Like just seeing that come together that that really makes me feel things to see just kind of people working together to kind of do something beyond their means. It's whether small. It's the- it's sort of small,
0: yeah, it's small things done by a- regular people when you combine them can change lives, just like yeah. a, uh, just like a line painted on the floor can change the game of basketball for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. yeah. It, you know, I always, the think part of this is always outside Barclays Center, there's the Oculus, you know, the, this, this spiraling uh, video board. But yep. so many people see it because it comes right. That you come out of the subway, you see it. You go into the arena, you see it. Um, if you could put anything up there for people to think about, what do you think it would
1: be? Oof! Wow, that's a uh, anything in the world. I mean, there's like almost too many things I want them to think about. There you go. Um, I've given you too large a scope. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm reading a book now at the uh, the history of what's it called money. The his the the. the through history of a made up thing, I forget. It's a, I think by Jacob Goldstein. Hmm. And there's just so much in there about like this thing that's so fundamental to our lives is just a human. It's really just a human construct. With as long as everybody believes in it, it's valuable. And as long as once you stop believing in whatever form of money is money, it that's when things collapse. And to me, I don't know. I can't really like put <laughs> that up on yeah. a board. I guess exactly. But just yeah, we just put a picture I, of the book. I've been thinking a lot about that concept and how, you know, everything that we think is true in this world is only true because people come together to agree that it's true. So what happens when that thing that we thought is true is either not true or is human made or is threatened? How do do people respond to that? In some ways, that's the story of the three-point revolution, too. So that's what I've been thinking about recently. The power of belief. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and more importantly, the power of when belief stops. When do we stop believing and how does that change everything? And that could eventually come about what we're
0: talking about in the NBA. You know, like it, without any kind of rule changes or anything, we could see it start to reverse.
1: Yeah. bigger players now.
0: No. no, but like bigger, like you mentioned, so many guys that are growing up in this generation. We're now seeing these freaks like Victor Wembayama at you know, 7 foot whatever, 7 foot 100, is is moving and playing like Seth Curry. Yeah. Because he grew up ball handling, shooting, and you're going to get these kind of players that it's hard to stop.
1: Yeah, it's it's true. It is, it is wild. I mean, do we ever reach a point where we say 94 by 50 isn't enough space? Mm. Do we ever say, like, we need to make this a bigger court? I know do that's kind ever- of been brought up. And,
0: you know, you always go with, the, well, the arenas are built for a certain thing. Well, maybe, maybe down the road, and anytime you build a new arena, you've got to sort of leave enough space that, I mean, a hockey, they, they mostly played in hockey arenas, right? And the hockey uh, ice is the bigger surface.
1: Yeah. Wasn't that an issue with the uh, Barclays Center and the, the, the Islanders when they were playing? I that believe, it was like yeah, the they didn't design
0: it for hockey because the Islanders originally said they didn't want to come.
1: And yeah. then they decided they
0: wanted to come and it wasn't, it wasn't built. Right. To the exact I remember that.
1: Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you just think about think about how many things are built on this service being 94 by 50. If you say, well, why are we doing that anymore? You have to change literally like the the construction of all these arenas. Yeah. You know, that's like, in some ways, that's a belief. I don't know. Now I'm like really going a little deep here.
0: <laughs> Spaced out. The NBA's three-point line changed everything you thought you knew about basketball. The author is Mike Prada, P-R-A-D-A. Go out and get that book and spark these kind of conversations with your friends around the bar when you're watching your NBA games from, uh, uh, on, on a Friday night, Mike, it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing. And, uh,
1: you know, maybe we'll do this again down the road. Appreciate it. I would love it. Thank you so much for having me and for the great work that you do, you know, calling Nets games. Thank you, Mike.
0: That interview with Mike Prada took a, a poignant turn there at the end when he talked about his dad and obviously a guy, like Mike, and writing this book as a love for the NBA and to see where that came from, going to games, Wizards games with his dad, who then he lost tragically. It kind of reminded the analogy I was going to use about the book and the relation to the NBA and its evolution. It's kind of like parenting. It was interesting that Mike brought up that story about Naismith, wanting, you know, envisioning the game to be kind of this wild, chaotic game. But in the beginning, just like a parent, You've got to give it some structure, and then you can kind of let it evolve. I love the movie Father of the Bride, Steve Martin, and he's talking to his future son-in-law's parents, and the father says to him, sometimes you just have to let them go and hope you brought them up right. That's always stuck with me in my life, in my life as a parent. So that was an interesting analogy to see where the game has evolved. It's like, you know, Naismith was the father. He envisioned it. He envisioned a life for his child, but he knew he needed to give it some structure. The NBA gave a lot of structure and let it evolve. And it's evolved rapidly. Um, When it comes to fathers and sons, you get nostalgic. You heard Mike Prater get nostalgic there. Fathers and daughters, mothers and daughters. My first NBA game, I remember, was my dad. I was about six years old. My dad brought me out to a New York Nets game. It was their first year in the NBA, but they were still playing in Long Island. One year before they went to New Jersey, and I actually saw the, the Nets play the Phoenix Suns. And I was about six years old. I vaguely remember it, but I do remember the sunburst on the shorts of the uniforms of the Suns. It always stuck with me. And then when they went to those throwbacks a few years ago, that wave of emotion and, and nostalgia just poured over me. And you think about your your relationship with your parents and the structure they gave you. And then hopefully they brought you up right and then you can evolve as a human being. The uh the song I'll bring up for this episode, in the direction that it's gone, is my favorite song from my favorite band. Song called Release from Pearl Jam. It's a son talking to his father about letting go. Oh, dear dad, can you see me now? I am myself like you somehow. I'll wait up in the dark for you to speak to me. I'll hold the pain. Release me. Thanks for listening, guys, to the very first episode of 2023. My thanks to producer Tom Dowd, engineer Isaac Lee. Happy New Year. Great things to come in 2023, hopefully, for everyone out there. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast.